Welcome to the final reading of the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. This final reading includes the 100 aphorisms from the Institutes. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. 100 Aphorisms Containing Within a Narrow Compass the Substance and Order of the Four Books of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Book 1. Number 1. The true wisdom of man consists in the knowledge of God, the Creator, and Redeemer. Number 2. This knowledge is naturally implanted in us, and the end of it ought to be the worship of God rightly performed, or reverence for the deity accompanied by fear and love. Number 3. But this seed is corrupted by ignorance, whence arises superstitious worship, and by wickedness, whence arise slavish dread and hatred of the deity. Number 4. It is also from another source that it is derived, namely, from the structure of the whole world and from the Holy Scriptures. Number five, this structure teaches us what is the goodness, power, justice, and wisdom of God in creating all things in heaven and earth, and in preserving them by ordinary and extraordinary government, by which his providence is more clearly made known. It teaches also what are our wants, that we may learn to place our confidence in the goodness, power, and wisdom of God, to obey his commandments, to flee to him in adversity, and to offer thanksgiving to him for the gifts which we enjoy. Number six, by the Holy Scriptures also God the Creator is known. We ought to consider what these Scriptures are, that they are true and have proceeded from the Spirit of God, which is proved by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, by the efficacy and antiquity of the Scriptures, by the certainty of the prophecies, by the miraculous preservation of the law, by the calling and writings of the apostles, by the consent of the church, and by the steadfastness of the mortars, whence it is evident that all the principles of piety are overthrown by those fanatics who, laying aside the scripture, fly to revelations. Number seven. Next, what they teach are what is the nature of God in himself and in the creation and government of all things. Number eight. The nature of God in himself is infinite, invisible, eternal, almighty, whence it follows that they are mistaken who ascribe to God a visible form, in his one essence there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number nine, in the creation of all things there are chiefly considered, first, heavenly and spiritual substances, that is, angels of which some are good and the protectors of the godly, while others are bad and not by creation, but by corruption. And second, earthly substances, and particularly man, whose perfection is displayed in soul and in body. Number ten, and the government of all things, the nature of God is manifested. 
Now his government is, in one respect, universal, by which he directs all the creatures according to the properties which he bestowed on each when he created them. Number 11. In another respect, it is special, which appears in regard to contingent events, so that if any person is visited either by adversity or by any prosperous result, he ought to ascribe it wholly to God, and with respect to those things which act according to a fixed law of nature, though their peculiar properties were naturally bestowed on them, still they exert their power only so far as they are directed by the immediate hand of God. Number 12. It is viewed also with respect to time past and future. Past, that we may learn that all things happen by the appointment of God, who acts either by means, or without means, or contrary to means so that everything which happens yields good to the godly and evil to the wicked. Future, to which belong human deliberations, and which shows that we ought to employ lawful means, since the providence on which we rely furnishes its own means. Number 13. Lastly, by attending to the advantage which the godly derive from it, for we know certainly, first, that God takes care of the whole human race, but especially of his church. And second, that God governs all things by his will and regulates them by his wisdom. And third, that he has most abundant power of doing good, for in his hand are heaven and earth. All creatures are subject to his sway, the godly rest on his protection, and the power of hell is restrained by his authority. That nothing happens by chance, though the causes may be concealed, but by the will of God by his secret will, which we are unable to explore, but adore with reverence, and by his will, which is conveyed to us in the law and in the gospel. Book 2. Number 14. The knowledge of God the Redeemer is obtained from the fall of man and from the material cause of redemption. Number 15. In the fall of man we must consider what he ought to be and what he may be. Number 16. For he was created after the image of God. That is, he was made a partaker of the divine wisdom, righteousness, and holiness, and being thus perfect in soul and in body, was bound to render to God a perfect obedience to his commandments. Number 17. The immediate causes of the fall were Satan, the serpent, Eve, the forbidden fruit. The remote causes were unbelief, ambition, ingratitude, obstinacy. Hence followed the obliteration of the image of God in man, who became unbelieving, unrighteous, liable to death. Number 18. We must now see what he may be in respect both of soul and of body. The understanding of the soul in divine things, that is, in the knowledge and true worship of God, is blinder than a mole. Good works it can neither contrive nor perform. In human affairs, as in the liberal and mechanical arts, it is exceedingly blind and variable. Now the will, so far as regards divine things, chooses only what is evil. So far as regards lower and human affairs, it is uncertain, wandering, and not wholly at its own disposal. Number 19. The body follows the depraved appetites of the soul, is liable to many infirmities, and at length to death. Number 20. Hence it follows that redemption for a ruined man must be sought through Christ the Mediator because the first adoption of a chosen people, the preservation of the church, her deliverance from dangers, her recovery after dispersions, and the hope of the godly always depended on the grace of the mediator. Accordingly, the law was given that it might keep their minds in suspense till the coming of Christ, which is evidenced from the history of a gracious covenant frequently repeated from ceremonies, sacrifices, and washings, from the end of adoption, and from the law of the priesthood. Number 21. The material cause of redemption is Christ, in whom we must consider three things. First, 
how he is exhibited to men. Second, how he is received. Third, how men are retained in his fellowship. Number 22. Christ is exhibited to men by the law and by the gospel. Number 23. The law is threefold, ceremonial, judicial, moral. The use of the ceremonial law is repealed. Its effect is perpetual. The judicial or political law was peculiar to the Jews and has been set aside, while that universal justice which is described in the moral law remains. The latter, or moral law, the object of which is to cherish and maintain godliness and righteousness, is perpetual and is incumbent on all. Number 24. The use of the moral law is threefold. The first use shows our weakness, unrighteousness, and condemnation, not that we may despair, but that we may flee to Christ. The second is that those who are not moved by promises may be urged by the terror of threatenings. The third is that we may know what is the will of God, that we may consider it in order to obedience, that our minds may be strengthened for that purpose, and that we may be kept from falling. Number 25. The sum of the law is contained in the preface and in the two tables. In the preface we observe, first, the power of God to constrain the people by the necessity of obedience, and second, a promise of grace by which he declares himself to be the God of the church, and third, a kind act on the ground of which he charges the Jews with ingratitude if they do not requite his goodness. Number 26. The first table which relates to the worship of God consists of four commandments. Number 27. The design of the first commandment is that God alone may be exalted in his people. To God alone, therefore, we owe adoration, trust, invocation, thanksgiving. Number 28. The design of the second commandment is that God will not have his worship profaned by superstitious rites. It consists of two parts. The former restrains our licentious daring that we may not subject God to our senses or represent him under any visible shape. The latter forbids us to worship any images on religious grounds, and therefore proclaims his power which he cannot suffer to be despised, his jealousy for he cannot bear a partner, his vengeance on children's children, his mercy to those who adore his majesty. Number 29. The third commandment enjoins three things. First, that whatever our mind conceives or our tongue utters may have a regard to the majesty of God. Second, that we may not rashly abuse his holy word and adorable mysteries for the purposes of ambition or avarice. Third, that we may not throw obloquy on his works, but may speak of them with commendations of his wisdom, long-suffering, power, goodness, justice. With these is contrasted a threefold profanation of the name of God by perjury, unnecessary oaths, and idolatrous rites. That is, when we substitute in the place of God saints, our creatures animate or inanimate. Number 30. The design of the fourth commandment is that being dead to our own affections and works, we may meditate on the kingdom of God. Now there are three things here to be considered. First, a spiritual rest when believers abstain from their own works that God may work in them. Second, that there may be a stated day for calling on the name of God, for hearing his word, and for performing religious rites. And third, that servants may have some remission from labor. Number 31. The second table, which relates to the duties of charity towards our neighbor, contains the last six commandments. The design of the fifth commandment is that since God takes pleasure in the observance of his own ordinance, the degrees of dignity appointed by him must be held inviolable. We are therefore forbidden to take anything from the dignity of those who are above us by contempt, obstinacy, or ingratitude. 
and we are commanded to pay them reverence, obedience, and gratitude. Number 32. The design of the sixth commandment is that since God has bound mankind by a kind of unity, the safety of all ought to be considered by each person, once it follows that we are forbidden to do violence to private individuals and are commanded to exercise benevolence. Number 33. The design of the seventh commandment is that because God loves purity, we ought to put away from us all uncleanness. He therefore forbids adultery in mind, word, and deed. Number 34. The design of the Eighth Commandment is that since injustice is an abomination to God, he requires us to render to every man what is his own. Now men steal, either by violence, or by malicious imposture, or by craft, or by sycophancy, etc. Number 35. The design of the Ninth Commandment is that since God, who is truth, abhors falsehood, he forbids calumnies and false accusations by which the name of our neighbor is injured and lies by which anyone suffers loss in his fortunes. On the other hand, he requires every one of us to defend the name and property of our neighbor by asserting the truth. Number 36. The design of the Tenth Commandment is that since God would have the whole soul pervaded by love, every desire averse to charity must be banished from our minds. Therefore, every feeling which tends to the injury of another is forbidden. Number 37. We have said that Christ is revealed to us by the Gospel. And first, the agreement between the Gospel, or the New Testament, and the Old Testament is demonstrated. First, because the godly, under both dispensations, have had the same hope of immortality. Second, they have had the same covenant, founded not on the works of men, but on the mercy of God. And third, they have had the same mediator between God and men, Christ. Number 38. Next, five points of difference between the two dispensations are pointed out. First, under the law, the heavenly inheritance was held out to them under earthly blessings, but under the gospel, our minds are led directly to meditate upon it. Second, the Old Testament, by means of figures, presented the image only, while the reality was absent, but the New Testament exhibits the present truth. Third, the former, in respect to the law, was the ministry of condemnation and death, the latter of righteousness and life. Fourth, the former is connected with bondage, which begets fear in the mind. The latter is connected with freedom, which produces confidence. And fifth, the word has been confined to the single nation of the Jews, but now it is preached to all nations. Number 39. The sum of evangelical doctrine is to teach, first, what Christ is, second, why he was sent, third, in what manner he accomplished the work of redemption. Number 40. Christ is God and man, God that he may bestow on his people righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, man because he had to pay the debt of man. Number 41. He was sent to perform the office, first, of a prophet, by preaching the truth, by fulfilling the prophecies, by teaching and doing the will of his Father. Second, of a king, by governing the whole church and every member of it, and by defending his people from every kind of adversaries. Third, of a priest, by offering his body as a sacrifice for sins, by reconciling God to us through his obedience, and by perpetual intercession for his people to the Father. Number 42. He performed the office of Redeemer by dying for our sins, by rising again for our justification, by opening heaven to us through his ascension, by sitting at the right hand of the Father whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead, and therefore he procured for us the grace of God and salvation. Book 3, number 43. 
we receive Christ the Redeemer by the power of the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ and therefore he is called the Spirit of sanctification and adoption the earnest and seal of our salvation water, oil, a fountain, fire, the hand of God number 44 faith is the hand of the soul which receives through the same efficacy of the Holy Spirit Christ offered to us in the gospel number 45 the general office of faith is to assent to the truth of God whenever, whatever, and in what manner soever he speaks. That its peculiar office is to behold the will of God in Christ, his mercy, the promises of grace, for the full conviction of which the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds and strengthens our hearts. Number 46. Faith, therefore, is a steady and certain knowledge of the divine kindness towards us, which is founded on a gracious promise through Christ and is revealed to our minds and sealed on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Number 47. The effects of prayer are four. First, repentance. Second, a Christian life. Third, justification. Fourth, prayer. Number 48. True repentance consists of two parts. First, mortification, which proceeds from the acknowledgement of sin and a real perception of the divine displeasure. Second, quickening, the fruits of which are piety towards God, charity towards our neighbor, the hope of eternal life, holiness of life. With this true repentance is contrasted false repentance, the parts of which are contrition, confession, and satisfaction. The two former may be referred to true repentance, provided that there be contrition of heart on account of the acknowledgement of sin, and that it be not separated from the hope of forgiveness through Christ, and provided that the confession be either private to God alone, or made to the pastors of the church willingly, and for the purpose of consolation, not for the enumeration of offenses, and for introducing a torture of the conscience, or public, which is made to the whole church, or to one or many persons in presence of the whole church. What was formerly called ecclesiastical satisfaction, that is, what was made for the edification of the church on account of repentance and public confession of sins, was introduced as due to God by the sophists, whence sprung the supplements of indulgences in this world, and the fire of purgatory after death. But the contrition of the sophists and auricular confession, as they call it, and the satisfaction of actual performance are opposed to the free forgiveness of sins. Number 49. The two parts of a Christian life are laid down. First, the love of righteousness, that we may be holy because God is holy and because we are united to him and are reckoned among his people. Second, that a rule may be prescribed to us which does not permit us to wander in the course of righteousness and that we may be conformed to Christ. A model of this is laid down to us which we ought to copy in our whole life. Next are mentioned the blessings of God, which it will argue extreme ingratitude if we do not requite. Number 50. The sum of the Christian life is denial of ourselves. Number 51. The ends of this self-denial are four. First, that we may devote ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Second, that we may not seek our own things but those which belong to God and to our neighbor. Third, that we may patiently bear the cross, the fruits of which are acknowledgement of our weakness, the trial of our patience, correction of faults, more earnest prayer, more cheerful meditation on eternal life. Fourth, that we may know in what manner we ought to use the present life and its aids for necessity and delight. Necessity demands that we possess all things as though we possessed them not, that we bear poverty with mildness and abundance with moderation, that we know how to endure patiently fullness and hunger and want, that we pay regard to our neighbor because we must give account of our stewardship, 
and that all things correspond to our calling. The delight of praising the kindness of God ought to be with us a stronger argument. Number 52. In considering justification, which is the third effect of faith, the first thing that occurs is an explanation of the word. He is said to be justified who, in the judgment of God, is deemed righteous. He is justified by works, whose life is pure and blameless before God, and no such person ever existed except Christ. They are justified by faith who, shut out from the righteousness of works, receive the righteousness of Christ. Such are the elect of God. Number 53. Hence follows the strongest consolation. For instead of a severe judge, we have a most merciful Father. Justified in Christ and having peace, trusting to his power, we aim at holiness. Number 54. Next follows Christian liberty, consisting of three parts. First, that the consciences of believers may rise above the law and may forget the whole righteousness of the law. Second, that the conscience, free from the yoke of the law, may cheerfully obey the will of God. Third, that they may not be bound by any religious scruples before God about things indifferent. But here we must avoid two precipices. First, that we do not abuse the gifts of God. Second, that we avoid giving and taking offense. Number 55. The fourth effect of faith is prayer, in which are considered its fruits, laws, faults, and petitions. Number 56. The fruit of prayer is fivefold. First, when we are accustomed to flee to God, our heart is inflamed with a stronger desire to seek, love, and adore Him. Second, our heart is not a prey to any wicked desire of which we would be ashamed to make God our witness. Third, we receive His benefits with thanksgiving. Fourth, having obtained a gift, we more earnestly meditate on the goodness of God. Fifth, experience confirms to us the goodness, providence, and truth of God. Number 57. The laws are four. First, that we should have our heart framed as becomes those who enter into converse with God, and therefore the lifting up of the hands, the raising of the heart, and perseverance are recommended. Second, that we should feel our wants. Third, that we should divest ourselves of every thought of our own glory, giving the whole glory to God. Fourth, that while we are prostrated amidst overwhelming evils, we should be animated by the sure hope of succeeding, since we rely on the command and promise of God. Number 58. They are who call on the saints that are placed beyond this life. First, because Scripture teaches that prayer ought to be offered to God alone, who alone knows what is necessary for us. He chooses to be present, because He has promised. He can do so, for He is Almighty. Second, because He requires that He be addressed in faith, which rests on His word and promise. Third, because faith is corrupted as soon as it departs from this rule. But in calling on the saints, there is no word, no promise, and therefore there is no faith. Nor can the saints themselves either hear or assist. Number 59. The summary of prayer which has been delivered to us by Christ the Lord is contained in a preface and two tables. Number 60. In the preface, the goodness of God is conspicuous, for he is called our Father. It follows that we are his children, and that to seek supplies from any other quarter would be to charge God either with poverty or with cruelty, that sins ought not to hinder us from humbly imploring mercy, and that a feeling of brotherly love ought to exist amongst us. The power of God is likewise conspicuous in his preface, for he is in heaven. Hence we infer that God is present everywhere, and that when we seek him, we ought to rise above perceptions of the body and the soul. 
that he is far beyond all risk of change or corruption, that he holds the whole universe in his grasp and governs it by his power. Number 61. The first table is entirely devoted to the glory of God and contains three petitions. First, that the name of God, that is, his power, goodness, wisdom, justice, and truth, may be hallowed. That is, that men may neither speak nor think of God, but with the deepest veneration. Second, that God may correct by the agency of his spirit all the depraved lusts of the flesh, may bring all our thoughts into obedience to his authority, may protect his children, and may defeat the attempts of the wicked. The use of this petition is threefold. Item 1, it withdraws us from the corruptions of the world. Item 2, it inflames us with the desire of mortifying the flesh. Item 3, it animates us to endure the cross. Third, the third petition relates not to the secret will of God, but to that which is made known by the scriptures, and to which voluntary obedience is the counterpart. Number 62, the second table contains the three remaining petitions, which relate to ourselves and our neighbors. First, it asks everything which the body needs in this sublunary state, for we commit ourselves to the care and providence of God, that he may feed, foster, and preserve us. Second, we ask those things which contribute to the spiritual life, namely the forgiveness of sins, which implies satisfaction, and to which is added a condition that when we have been offended by deed or by word, we nevertheless forgive them their offenses against us. Third, we ask deliverance from temptations, or that we may be furnished with armor and defended by the divine protection, that we may be able to obtain the victory. Temptations differ in their cause, for God, Satan, the world, and the flesh tempt in their matter, for we are tempted on the right hand in respect of riches, honors, beauty, etc., and on the left hand in respect of poverty, contempt, and afflictions and in their end, for God tempts the godly for good, but Satan, the flesh, and the world tempt them for evil. Number 63. Those four effects of faith bring us to the certainty of election and of the final resurrection. Number 64. The causes of election are these. The efficient cause is the free mercy of God, which we ought to acknowledge with humility and thanksgiving. The material cause is Christ, the well-beloved Son, final cause is that being assured of our salvation because we are God's people we may glorify him both in this life and in the life which is to come to all eternity the effects are in respect either of many persons or of a single individual and that by electing some and justly reprobating others the elect are called by the preaching of the word and the illumination of the Holy Spirit are justified and sanctified that they may at length be glorified number 65 the final resurrection will take place, first, because on any other supposition we cannot be perfectly glorified, second, because Christ rose in our flesh, third, because God is almighty. Book 4, number 66, God keeps us united in the fellowship of Christ by means of ecclesiastical and civil government. Number 57, in ecclesiastical government three things are considered, first, what is the church, second, how is it governed, Third, what is its power? Number 68. The church is regarded in two points of view, as invisible and universal, which is the communion of saints, and as visible and particular. The church is discerned by the pure preaching of the word, and by the lawful administration of the sacraments. Number 69. As to the government of the church, there are five points of inquiry. First, who rule? Second, what are they? Third, what is their calling? Fourth, what is their office? Fifth, what was the condition of the ancient church? 
Number 70. They that rule are not angels, but men. In this respect, God declares his condescension towards us. We have a most excellent training to humility and obedience, and it is singularly fitted to bind us to mutual charity. Number 71. These are prophets, apostles, evangelists, whose office was temporary, pastors and teachers whose office is of perpetual duration. Number 72. Their calling is twofold, internal and external. The internal is from the Spirit of God. In the external there are four things to be considered. First, what sort of persons ought to be chosen? Men of sound doctrine and holy lives. Second, in what manner? With fasting and prayer. Third, by whom? Immediately by God as prophets and apostles. Immediately with the direction of the word by bishops, by elders, and by the people. Fourth, with what right of ordination? By the laying on of hands, the use of which is threefold. First, that the dignity of the ministry may be commended. Second, that he who is called may know that he is devoted to God. Third, that he may believe that the Holy Spirit will not desert this holy ministry. Number 73. The duty of pastors in the church is to preach the word, to administer the sacraments, to exercise discipline. Number 74. The condition of the ancient church was distributed into presbyters, elders, deacons, who dispensed the funds of the church to the bishops, the clergy, the poor, and for repairing churches. Number 75. The power of the church is viewed in relation to doctrine, legislation, and jurisdiction. Number 76. Doctrine respects the articles of faith, none of which must be laid down without the authority of the word of God, but all must be directed to the glory of God and the edification of the church. It respects also the application of the articles, which must agree with the analogy of faith. Number 77. Ecclesiastical laws and precepts necessary to be observed must be in accordance with the written word of God. In things indifferent, regard must be had to places, persons, times, with a due attention to order and decorum. Those constitutions ought to be avoided which have been laid down by pretended pastors instead of the pure worship of God, which bind the consciences by rigid necessity, which make void a commandment of God, which are useless and trifling, which oppress the consciences by their number, which lead to theatrical display, which are considered to be propitiatory sacrifices, and which are turned to the purposes of gain. Number 78. Jurisdiction is twofold. First, that which belongs to the clergy, which was treated of under the head of provincial and general synods. Second, that which is common to the clergy and the people, the design of which is twofold, that scandals may be prevented, and that scandal which has arisen may be removed. The exercise of it consists in private and public admonitions, and likewise in excommunication, the object of which is threefold. First, that the church may not be blamed. Second, that the good may not be corrupted by intercourse with the bad. Third, that they who are excommunicated may be ashamed and may begin to repent. Number 79. With regard to times, fasts are appointed and vows are made. The design of fasts is that the flesh may be mortified, that we may be better prepared for prayer, and that they may be evidences of humility and obedience. They consist of three things, the time, the quality, and the quantity of food. But here we must beware lest we rend our garments only and not our hearts as hypocrites do, lest those actions be regarded as a meritorious performance, and lest they be too rigorously demanded as necessary to salvation. Number 80. In vows we must consider, first, to whom the vow is made, namely, to God. 
Hence it follows that nothing must be attempted but what is approved by his word, which teaches us what is pleasing and what is displeasing to God. Second, who it is that vows, namely, a man. We must therefore beware lest we disregard our liberty or promise what is beyond our strength or inconsistent with our calling. Third, what is vowed? Here regard must be had to time, to the past, such as a vow of thanksgiving and repentance, to the future, that we may afterwards be more cautious and may be stimulated by them to the performance of duty. Hence it is evident what opinion we ought to form respecting popish vows. Number 81. In explaining the sacraments, there are three things to be considered. First, what a sacrament is, namely, an external sign by which God seals on our consciences the promises of his good will towards us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. We, in our turn, testify our piety towards him. Second, what things are necessary, namely, the sign, the thing signified, the promise, and the general participation. Third, what is the number of them, namely, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Number 82. The sign in baptism is water. The thing signified is the blood of Christ. The promise is eternal life. The communicants, our partakers, are adults after making a confession of their faith, and likewise infants. For baptism came in the place of circumcision, and in both the mystery, promise, use, and efficacy are the same. Forgiveness of sins also belongs to infants, and therefore it is likewise a sign of this forgiveness. Number 83. The end of baptism is twofold. First, to promote our faith towards God, for it is a sign of our washing by the blood of Christ and of the mortification of our flesh and the renewal of our souls in Christ. Besides being united to Christ, we believe that we shall be partakers of all his blessings and that we shall never fall under condemnation. Second, to serve as our confession before our neighbor, for it is a mark that we choose to be regarded as the people of God, and we testify that we profess the Christian religion, and that our desire is that all the members of our body may proclaim the praise of God. Number 84. The Lord's Supper is a spiritual feast by which we are preserved in that life into which God hath begotten us by his word. Number 85. The design of the Lord's Supper is threefold. First, to aid in confirming our faith towards God. Second, to serve as a confession before men. Third, to be an exhortation to charity. Number 86. We must beware lest, by undervaluing the signs, we separate them too much from their mysteries with which they are in some measure connected, and lest, on the other hand, by immoderately extolling them, we appear to obscure the mysteries themselves. Number 87. The parts are two. First, the spiritual truth in which the meaning is beheld consists in the promises. The matter or substance is Christ dead and risen, and the effect is our redemption and justification. Second, the visible signs are bread and wine. Number 88. With the Lord's Supper is contrasted the Popish Mass. First, it offers insult and blasphemy to Christ. Second, it buries the cross of Christ. Third, it obliterates his death. Fourth, it robs us of the benefits which we obtain in Christ. Fifth, it destroys the sacraments in which the memorial of his death was left. Number 89. The sacraments, falsely so called, are enumerated, which are confirmation, penitence, extreme unction, orders, which gave rise to the seven less and the three greater, and marriage. Number 90. Next comes civil government, which belongs to the external regulation of manners. Number 91. Under this head are considered magistrates, laws, and the people. Number 92. 
The magistrate is God's vicegerent, the father of his country, the guardian of the laws, the administrator of justice, the defender of the church. Number 93. By these names he is excited to the performance of duty. First, that he may walk in holiness before God and before men may maintain uprightness, prudence, temperance, harmlessness, and righteousness. Second, that by wonderful consolation it may smooth the difficulties of his office. Number 94. The kinds of magistracy our civil government are monarchy, aristocracy, democracy. Number 95. As to laws, we must see what is their constitution in regard to God and to men, and what is their equity in regard to times, places, and nations. Number 96. The people owe to the magistrate, first, reverence heartily rendered to him as God's ambassador. Second, obedience or compliance with edicts or paying taxes or undertaking public offices and burdens. Third, that love which will lead us to pray to God for his prosperity. Number 97. We are enjoined to obey not only good magistrates, but all who possess authority, though they may exercise tyranny. For it was not without the authority of God that they were appointed to be princes. Number 98. When tyrants reign, let us first remember our faults, which are chastised by such scourges, and therefore humility will restrain our impatience. Besides, it is not in our power to remedy these evils, and all that remains for us is to implore the assistance of the Lord, in whose hand are the hearts of men and the revolutions of kingdoms. Number 99. In two ways God restrains the fury of tyrants, either by raising up from among their own subjects open avengers who rid the people of their tyranny, or by employing for that purpose the rage of men whose thoughts and contrivances are totally different, thus overturning one tyranny by means of another. Number 100. The obedience enjoined on subjects does not prevent the interference of any popular magistrates whose office it is to restrain tyrants and to protect the liberty of the people. Our obedience to magistrates ought to be such that the obedience which we owe to the King of Kings shall remain entire and unimpaired. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. 
Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRD makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.